In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Aside from the moment of Jesus' arrest, when all of his disciples forsook him and fled, the interchange that we've just heard between Jesus and his disciples in the boat represents probably the low point in their three-year journey with him. Just to set the context, within the last two chapters of Mark's Gospel, Jesus has fed first 5,000 people, besides women and children, and then 4,000 people, with, I think it's seven loaves the first time and five the second, or the other way around. And right after the second feeding, which is right before this passage we just heard, the Pharisees come and ask him for a sign from heaven, as though he had not given them the most unmistakably clear sign they could possibly ask for, feeding the crowds in the wilderness, remember, just as God fed the Israelites with manna from heaven. So what more of a sign do these Pharisees need to prove that Jesus is indeed the Messiah sent from God, and that he is here to proclaim the inbreaking of God's reign, which is accomplished in his very person? Well, all of that is bad enough, but what we heard just now is where Jesus withdraws with his disciples, as he often does after one of these interchanges with the Pharisees, and he talks to them as the insider. So earlier in Mark, you had a, a passage where it talks about how there are people who are not going to understand, who are on the outside of understanding about Christ. But then he talks to his disciples, who are supposed to be the insiders, the ones who are supposed to get it. And we knew that the, the Pharisees were going to harden their hearts against Jesus, but these disciples were not supposed to. And so Jesus says, don't be like those Pharisees and those Herodians, those people who are willfully refuse to see and to hear who I am and what I'm doing and what God is doing through me. But the depressing thing, the disheartening thing in this passage is that the disciples, even the disciples, don't get it at all. And they take his comments as being literally about how much bread they have. And of course, they only have one loaf. Well, first of all, this is crazy because they've just seen him feed the 4,000 and then before that the 5,000. So why are they worrying about whether they have enough bread? Because there he is, the one who has made enough bread for all the multitudes. But secondly, do they really think he's talking about literal bread? This is like those passages in John's Gospel where you have people talking on two different levels. You have the woman at the well talking about water, and Jesus is talking about living water, and she keeps thinking he's talking about physical water, but he's talking about something else. And they say, oh, it's because we don't have any bread. But no, he says, that's not what I'm talking about. Do you still not understand? And he, at this point, he is getting kind of fed up with them. And he, and he launches into this barrage of questions. Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not perceive or understand are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes and fail to see, or ears and fail to hear? As I say, this is about the lowest point between Jesus and the disciples, right up until the end of the story. But these questions ought to sear our hearts as well. Do you not see? Do you not understand? Do you not hear? Do you have eyes and fail to see, or ears and fail to hear? And the question for us is, where do we, 
fail to see and to hear Jesus in our lives? Where do we fail to understand who he is and what he's doing? And on this Valentine's Day, when we are invited to focus on the heart, on love in all of its forms, we can ask, where are our hearts hardened? Are our hearts hardened against God, against Jesus, who longs to be the Lord of our hearts? What would it mean to open our hearts to him in a whole new way? On this day of heartfulness? What would it mean to turn to him with an open heart, a heart willing to receive his love and to be changed by it? And if we did this, how would this change our hearts toward those whose lives are closely linked with ours, as it says in the prayers? Would it change our way of treating them? Would we become more compassionate and more forgiving toward them. And beyond that, how would opening our hearts to Jesus change our way of relating to those further away from us and even our enemies? In this time of our national life, when there's so much conflict and pain and division, and so much willful refusal to see and hear and understand each other and God's voice to us. Those of us who are called to be religious leaders, I think, have one simple touchstone task, and that is to lead from an open heart. To lead from an open heart. A heart open to Christ, to his radically transforming love. And then a heart open to loving this whole world, friends, enemies, strangers, those we know, those we don't know. That's been a bit of a mantra for me since the election. Let my heart be open. Let my heart be open. And then see where God will take us. And of course, we have help. And the galling thing, just to remind you about that passage, is the disciples worrying about the lack of bread is that Jesus, of course, is right there with them. But it's not just that he will provide the bread that they need as he provided it to the multitudes. It's that he is the bread that they need. They only have with them one loaf, one bread, one body, and that's him. They have him in the boat with them. And so do we. After his barrage of questions, there's one more, which is haunting and yet encouraging. Do you not remember? Do you not remember? When we can't see or hear or feel Christ's presence, his call is a, to us is to remember. Once I went on a retreat, and at the beginning of it, I said to my spiritual director, I really don't feel God in my life, and I haven't felt God's presence in a while. And her advice was, remember. She said, go write down all the times that you remember God being active in your life. Go all the way back. First I thought, oh, I'm not going to be able to think of anything. And then I started writing, and then I just couldn't stop writing. I just wrote, I filled pages. And this was coming from me having really felt
feeling very far from God at that time. But I could remember how God had been in my life. And through those memories, I was able to trust that God would be with me as God had been with me in the past. It was memory that healed. And of course, that's how worship works. We come here perhaps not feeling God's presence in our lives, perhaps with very hard hearts. But when we come to worship, what happens is that we remember. We remember and recount who God is and what God has done. That's what happens in the Psalms of lament. There's all that lament, God, where are you? You're not with me. And then, but I remember, I remember what you've done. But that's the dynamic of worship too. We remember in scripture, we remember in prayers and the breaking of the bread. We remember that this one loaf is Christ, the food that God has given us, who's always enough and more than enough for us. And we understand and we remember that this bread broken and this blood poured out are God's very life, God's overflowing love for all of us. Through memory, our eyes are opened, we see, we hear, we understand, we know that God is with us, our hearts are opened to Christ and to each other, and we go forth to follow him on the way. Amen.